Steve, I am currently on day two of the biggest hangover of my life. <laughs> Just so you know where I am emotionally. I've known you uh, for quite I, a while and that's a big statement. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I have a blanket wrapped around me currently. I'm sipping on some ginger ale and I'm not, I'm not lying, Steve, when I say this, this is an exaggeration. But before I took your call, I was listening to whale sounds on Spotify. <laughs> like whale song, relaxing whale song. <laughs> like the Big Lebowski. Like the Big Lebowski. And not only that, and the listeners might be able to hear this at some point, but I'm upstairs in my apartment and there's a guy on the roof next door to me and he is just hitting his roof and he's alternating between two hammers. He's got a small one and a large one. Currently, he's on the small one, so you can't really hear it. But every so often, he takes out a large one and just starts whamming on the roof. To what end? I don't know. So that's on my left. And then on my right, my other neighbour downstairs is drilling something for some reason and he won't stop, Steve. So you got a guy just hammering stop. on the roof and you got another guy just drilling away. Yeah, and I'm expecting to look to the window and just see a raven there pecking on it, just reminding me about the slow march of my own death. I think you reminded yourself enough of that whenever you consumed a copious amount of alcohol. Yeah, if you open Google Maps, right, try and look for where, try and look for Notting Hill. You'll probably notice that it's not there anymore because I drank it, Steve. I drank it. It's in me now. You were and drinking I'm processing with it for the last two days. Hugh Jackman and Julia Roberts. What were you doing that for? Hugh Jackman? Hugh Grant? Hugh Grant, yeah. I would much better have drink. <laughs> I wish Jackman. I was drinking with Wolverine. But no, no. Was it a Christmas party? Can you tell me like a nice story or something? Oh no, this is all bad news. But like, tell me something about your dogs. I just need, I need something. <laughs> um, How's Hercules? He's doing great, except there's something up with his, with his pheromones. He's, I think he smells like a bitch in heat to other dogs and they all want to hump him. Oh. Is that a good story? <laughs> That's kind of cute. It's pretty funny because <laughs> because of his wobbly hips, whenever they try to mount him, he just falls over and he's like, bleh. Oh, oh no. And you have this big dog rape is looming over him. And I was like, get back, get oh, back. No. Oh, let's play the theme music. That always cheers me up. It didn't cheer me up. <laughs> It didn't share me up. But maybe the news will? Um, doubt it. <laughs> Why? Well, let's go to America first. Impeachment update. Mm-hmm. Um, Is he gone yet? No. That would cheer me up. <laughs> He's not going to go anywhere. Um, so What's the latest? They've gone through the process of, I guess, like the exploratory committee investigations where they interviewed a whole load of people. Um, and then the new bit is they, they give it to the committee on justice, I believe it is. And they're the ones that'll mm-hmm. actually get to decide whether or not to impeach him. Okay. And, and when does that happen? Well, it's going to happen ASAP because Nancy Pelosi just this week called on that committee to draw up the articles of impeachment so that she can put it to the floor for a vote in the House of Representatives. And then it is likely that they will vote according to Democratic-Republican lines and that Trump will get impeached before the end of the year. Right. But that doesn't so, mean anything happens. He'll just get impeached. It'll go to the Senate. There'll be a whole rigmarole, mad circus of hilarity and despondency and then Mm. the Republicans will acquit him and things will carry on. Ah, and we all live happily ever after. Uh, (laughs) These these articles of impeachment, these are just like uh, detailing all of the various misdemeanors and the grounds on which they're looking to impeach him. Is that it? Is that? Yeah, exactly. Precisely. Um, So it's basically a question as to whether or not they're going to concentrate on what this present saga is, which is the whole Ukraine, Joe Biden son investigation thingy or there's a possibility they might try and pull in other things like uh, what was brought up in the Mueller report and the Russians and that kind of stuff 
Right. I've yeah. It's. I mean, they would probably. Does your prediction still stay as is, where you don't think it'll go anywhere, or is the all this you know as it becomes more tangible, do you feel yourself being swayed more? Uh, well, I don't have a vote. <laughs> no, but I mean, like your opinion of what's going to happen. I mean, no, I yeah, no, it's, it's, it's everything is going according to plan. The um, the Republicans are doubling down on defending their president because they're not going to let their president get shot in the foot. Um, it's you see. There was a Republican, um, they, they they brought in a lot of law scholars to give um, testimony. They call them lollers, but continue. Lawlers, yeah. <laughs> they brought in the lollers to give talk. Um, there were two that were like, oh yeah, this is awful, get rid of them. And there was a Republican guy who says, I don't like Trump, but you have to be careful about what this will mean for future presidents as to whether or not this counts as high crimes and misdemeanors. Because it's not like... Uh, Nixon, where he specifically sent in people to break into somewhere and then tried to cover it up. And it's not like Bill Clinton, where he lied under oath. This is this is like fiddledy, awkward, shitty politics, but it's not necessarily but illegal. Did, didn't another another expert who they brought in to testify literally say the opposite, that if none of this is impeachable, then nothing is impeachable? Yeah, but that's just their opinion, you see. Right. Because that's not true. Nothing. It, the, the, this guy's tried to say if th- just because this, just because those other things were impeachable, doesn't mean that this thing falls in the same thing. I mean, I bet you if you pick out every single American president, you'll find an instance of foreign policy where it's pretty dodgy to one side or the other that they're doing things mm. that could be spun as party political. I mean, it's just it's politics at work. Granted, right? He's a shit. He did it in a shitty way. <laughs> he's continuing to cover it up in a shitty way and acting like an absolute shit as all this shit continues to roll down the massive shitstorm. But. Mm. What's going to happen next? What happens? What's going to happen when the Democrats have someone in charge? Are the Republicans just going to do the same again? Are we just going to have an impeachment trial in every single presidency from now on? Are we? Richie? It, could the Are new, we? it could become the, it could become the new trendy thing that's in vogue. It could be. And who who impeached who better? <laughs> well, to be honest, yes. <laughs> but then none of it goes anywhere, and then it doesn't mean anything. And then if. Trump's son shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. You can't get rid of him because impeachment as is was foretold rogue. by the fa- his father before. You him. see, you see, in the great prophecy. So, anyways, I think. I, but then again, at the same time, they kind of did have to go through this. There was just so much political pressure coming from the Democratic side to impeach him for something, mm-hmm. and this was yeah. this was pretty shitty. Probably worthy of going through the rigmarole, but also the Republicans are doubling down. Like um, some Republicans that maybe started off saying what he was doing in Ukraine wasn't great are now saying no, nothing wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. Mm. They're just it's right. it's going down party lines, and the party lines say that he's going to be acquitted by the Senate. Oh, you're not helping my hangover, Saws babes. So mm. you were obviously at some sort of big election rally. That's why you got drunk, right? I was definitely at election rally, and not some sort of gluttonous hedonistic Christmas party. That is for sure. <laughs> you were at Boris Johnson's Christmas party, you big perv. Was, yeah, they are doing one of the same for that man. I just imagine. I just imagine that it's uh, it's like you know eyes wide shut, except instead of loads of beautiful <laughs> naked people, it's a lot of really really chubby and hairy. Naked people, <laughs> and because far off. because it's Christmas themed, like they just have tinsel around their shoulders as well. <laughs> Am I right? Oh man, no one lo- and no one looked like Tom Cruise or Nicole Kidman. Ah, Richie, you you could look like Nicole Kidman in a certain. I am, I, I am I am the closest to Nicole Kidman in that office. <laughs> now, everyone's lovely and beautiful in my office. What am I talking about? <laughs> this is going to be brought up in an HR meeting. Richie, you really offended Sally, who thinks that she's the spinning image of Nicole Kidman. Kidman, by you saying that you were <laughs> the closest we had to Nicole Kidman. Anyway, yes, no, the the UK general election is happening on Thursday. Yeah. Which is like, what, two days? This episode's coming out Tuesday. So yeah, two days after you're hearing this, if you downloaded it um, when it comes out. Um, polls are 
Sean, Conservatives are still still have a decent lead. Labour closed in a bit, but there's still like a mm. ten point gap. Different to last time. Hmm? Different to last time because Labour really really gained on them, which isn't really happening this time. True. Well, there's they they did have a little bit of it. They closed a little bit this past week, oh, okay. but yeah, it's still like a te- it's still, yeah it's still a ten point gap. But uh, I was reading someone pointed out that during the 2017 election there was also a similar ten point gap oh. between Conservatives and Labour, and they managed to like surge in the way more on. Vo- on yeah, in the final hours on voting day. And still lost, by the um, way. And still lost, but won by losing, yeah. as we have discussed. <laughs> um, Lib Dems hit a bit of a slump. Yeah. They're down to 14%. So they're... No, it's, it's it's sad because a lot of people are looking at them as like the, you know, the absolute remainers. Um, but they kind of, they're, seem to be get losing traction more so than gaining anything. And may end up hurting by splitting the vote a little bit between, between people who um, are pro-remain. And Brexit Party are dipped way down to 4%. So they're... You know, in the dust. Fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to dance around that, but thank you. Other interesting bits on the general election. Um, Trump was in town for the NATO yeah, summit. Yeah, and he didn't shit but, the bed. Yeah, that's that's the crazy thing. He kept his... Uh, it makes me th- it makes me wonder, was there some sort of prior agreement where... Because he's obviously the right, a really controversial and disliked figure. So were they like, okay, in this, this penultimate and, and leading into the final week of this um, election... Will you just stay the fuck away and don't tweet and just don't associate yourself with Boris, who he has previously called a UK Trump? Like, will you just stay away and we'll talk after this is all done, babes? Yes. Like, I wonder, is that the conversation they had? Because even like uh, Trump did go to 10 Downing Street, but Boris didn't meet him at the door as if he was trying to like avoid the cameras. Mm, that was weird, wasn't it? Yeah. So and that's usually what happens. Usually whoever dignitaries are visiting people, they always are met at 10 Downing Street and there's like a little photo op. They wave and they walk in. That didn't happen. Mm. Trump just had to like sideline in like he was meeting his mate for pre-drinks. <laughs> Round the back. Yeah, with a, with a, with a centre bag of, of, of um, Dutch gold. If I was a world leader, I would do a di- like a ding-dong and dash. Have <laughs> Boris Johnson over the door. What are you, you bloody <laughs> You're president of Ireland? <laughs> Knocking over the bins and skipping <laughs> off. <down the> road. <laughs> Scatter! <laughs> um, yeah but like I said the polling day itself is on Thursday so we'll, we'll probably have a lot more to chat about this after the fact want to make a prediction um, make a prediction I uh, I think Conservatives Labour will probably make a similar gain to what they did but like a surprising gain on polling day but I don't think it'll be enough and I think we'll end up with a Conservative majority that's what I think what do you think yeah I'm not sure um, because if you if you think about the numbers like if if Labour make a gain, then that means the Conservatives can't get another majority because they're already in a minority. So I think... Well, that's true. I think I think the Conservatives probably will do quite well in some areas, but then won't in others. So I'm honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> it's hard like, to know. It's hard to know, yeah. I mean... I, I was reading a BBC report about the uh, guy who's doing like a a kind of anecdotal tour, whistle-stop tour of the Workington Man kind of areas mm. that you chatted about before. And all he can give is anecdotal response uh, or anecdotal evidence at this point, but he says he seemed to think that a lot of people were making the leap from Labour to Conservative um, mm. in those kind of key areas, those working class from areas. From what I can tell, um, most people think that this is the, this is like most elections are the choice between two evils, but this is really like people do not like Boris Johnson. Oh, a lot it's of people, awful. It's the definition of a big douche turd sandwich situation. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. I, honestly, it feels like the Tories will pull it off and get a majority, but probably not that big a one and it'll collapse again mm. within a year or two. Maybe they got might, they might, they might get enough to get Brexit through. Yeah, they're, they're, um, they're, I'm being hit targeted with, you can see like their um, ad spend and stuff, so it's on YouTube and getting targeted with stuff from the Conservative Party. Their line seems, I know, their line seems to be now about like, um, 
we're uh, all you know, your apartment's failing you. Everyone's arguing about arguing. Can we not just like get this through? Seems to be the language that they're hitting on, despite the fact that a lot of those people arguing are conservatives anyway. So mm. anyway, before we move um, on, I would propose yeah. that we take a brief pause and put on that little l- l- lobby music you have, and then we can start recording again about Irish news whenever our Irish guest shows up. Sounds great. We were just discussing before you came in uh, news. So we did talk about the UK election. Mm-hmm. We we're just saying that you you think it might be a Corbyn. I'm, I think this time around, yeah. Okay, yeah. has to be interesting. Um, neither of us came down on that that conclusion, but I would like we, that. We didn't come, but yeah, I don't feel we didn't come down on a conclusion. Yeah, mm. we're open. <laughs> um, but we also wanted to talk a little bit about recent Irish politics because we don't really give Irish politics enough of a shout out, and it can be said that it wasn't a great week in the last week for Irish politics. No, no. Um, were you aware of the Dara Murphy scara, sc- scandal? Oh yeah, I saw the scandal. Uh, but again, what makes me laugh about Irish politics is that uh, all the, Trump Trump did a great phrase recently where uh, they were asking him, how, how are you going to do in the election? Oh, I think we're going to bull through. I think we're going to bull through. And that bulling through is the Irish attitude in politics. And the reason is, of course, because it's beautifully set up for politicians. So after three years, a minister gets a ministerial pension for life. Okay, which is huge, which is huge. So you can basically you could uh, do whatever you want. You never you you notice anyone coalition will never question the government, by the way, um, for the first three years. And then they start getting a bit antsy after three years because the pensions in the bag. Mm. And I feel the same way about a lot of politicians. They know because of the EU gravy train that there's a job at the end of it. I mean, you had someone like uh, Phil Hogan turning around and say, well, reduce your water to a trickle. Right? Remember this. He also quoted Robespierre's you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs, which the last time that was used, Robespierre used it to say, that's why I'm guillotining 30,000 people. Now, in those days, though, things like that had consequences. So Robespierre, of course, in the great Twitter wars and cancel culture of the French Revolution. (laughs) Got his head chopped off. Gets his head chopped (laughs) off. But Phil Hogan goes and gets a nice job in the EU. Yeah. And and this this is what's laughable about the whole thing. Everyone goes... With enough pressure, these politicians, they'll give in. They'll bull through. They know there's a big cushy number at the end of it somewhere. As long as they just keep running the country with austerity policies, they know there's a cushy number at the end of it. So the only way to reform Irish politics is to make it a two-term max for any politician. You've got ten year, or five or ten years to get your passions done. You've got to get them done, by the way, because you're gone after five years or, or ten years. I'd say five, actually, because that will put the impetus on them. And then after that, you got to go back into the, the real world like the rest of us and make money, you know. And I just think this idea that of this cushy gravy train for the rest of life is what leads to this kind of behaviour. Mm. I'm just fobbing in, fobbing in there, you know. Because that's what was going on. Dara Murphy yeah. was a Fine Gael TD who was on the wrong side of the leadership heave um, when Leo Varadkar became Taoiseach. Yeah. He had already come out against him um, with Simon Coveney. He kind of drifted off and was supposed to be just like another backbencher, but instead went off and got a job in Europe and for the last two years has been collecting a salary in Europe while still a full-time TD. While still a full-time TD. And, and see, this is, I mean... But having never spoken in the doll for two years no. and having never sat in a committee, despite being on committees, fobbing in and out, making loads of money, and then this week, 
uh, officially retiring and now taking up an even better job. So when you say yes, fobbing but, in and out is that just like him just just to like register in the system as being present? Exactly. There's a, it's clocking in. Basically. There's, a, yeah. there's a physical fob system in Lancer House to prove yeah. that you're in there, supposedly doing work. So he could just and, got in there, use the jacks, fobbed out. Yep, yeah, that's what on his way to the airport to go to Brussels to do to do another job. Right. I think that's a lot of them do that. They just fob in to use the two billion quid printer. <laughs> uh, they just fob in, print a few posters. Uh, what else? I'll print out some colouring sheets for my kids. And then they head out. And that's it for the day. No, I think there's something very... Uh, and of course, he resigned or retired or whatever the hell it is after he voted to save Owen Murphy. So yeah. amazingly, we're now living with the lowest minority government in Irish history, which is 48 TDs supported by... Fianna Fáil, the largest opposition party, have more TDs than the government party. Amazingly. And of course, this is the first time since 1927, June of 1927, returned 50 TDs for Cumann and Gael. And because they had some kind of principle back then, although I would never say Cumann and Gael had any principles, they had another election in three months to try and get a better government. Whereas with this minority government, Fianna Fáil just sat back and go, yeah, you go ahead and do it. And I laugh every time I see Fianna Fáil politicians mm. pretending to be the opposition. It's pretend opposition. And in fact... It's always been the case in Ireland that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are pretend opposition. They're both kind of centre-right. Because they rotate. They rotate. And and they all know the cushy jobs, the cushy numbers at the end of it over in Europe. So the whole system has to change. Everything must change in terms of the, the Irish political system. Or you're just going to keep having the same thing happen again and again. But I mean, I laugh. Somebody tweeted, the farmers came up and protested in, in Dublin there and, and blocked up all the streets. And that's great. Fantastic. But... Just remember, farmers, when you go, you know, you will be voting Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael in the next election. So, yeah. so un- unless you change your voting practice and don't go in like most people in Ireland where this, you know, I'm going I'm to vote left for the first time ever. And then some kind of Ouija board thing happens to their hands that swings them back over to Fine Gael or Fine Gael. They Finnegan. give them the one. And then they all, but, I, but I gave the left guy a five. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was like when Eamon Dunphy said he was going to vote Sinn Féin. And then he comes out and says, no, no I voted for, uh, I, I, I voted for um, Jim McCallaghan. Why did he even have to say that? It's a secret ballot. <laughs> well, because I, I think it's helpful to say I'm changing my vote for the first time because I'm disgusted by what, what mm. successive governments have done to this but country. Then and then you t- they go back in and like the Ouija board. It's like the hand swings back over to the, I'm scared. They might take 1% of my money. I'm not saying that with Eamon Dun- I'm just saying that whatever it is in this country, the Stockholm Syndrome, they always vote for the two establishment parties. So what I do in my shows is I, I put up a big poster and I say the Fine Gael and Fine Fall should get together, make one party called Gael Fail <laughs> uh, with the tagline, uh, we'll be there soon, in a while, sure, look it. <laughs> and that'll be it. And, and, and that's kind of Gael Fail. And at least if they got together, it would be honest. We'd have about 90 TDs. But you see, the great thing about the water charges with nobody for, remembers nobody wants to remember is it produced this minority government like there was, there was no government in Irish history that, that you know be, since 1927 that had only 50 TDs and needed the other party which used to get 80 TDs to support them with 43 TDs so there's been a massive sea change a massive swing towards the left in Irish politics and yet it hasn't been commented on in that way it hasn't been treated that way uh, Fine Gael are treated like they're the government like, mm. Oh, they're just the government, the permanent government. We'll just interchange a few people and always the same blue suits. What's with the blue suits? <laughs> Somebody wear something different. Paddy, it feels We've been like we're... for a while. Yeah, <laughs> we are heading, hurtling towards satire territory here. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, this is we, excellent. This is a, this is a rare, uh, smooth segue for us. Briefly though, um, as an introduction, you've mentioned a few times you, do, you, you, you have a show. 
Yeah, well, I, I, I'm I, Paddy Cullivan. I worked on uh, Callan's Kicks as a writer for quite some time. I have a band, the Camembert Quartet, which was the Late Late Show House band and still is for 10 years. Um, and kind of always worked in the field of comedy and satire, did work in the Cat Labs. The Camembert Quartet had two comedy albums in the early 2000s. And in fact, we got there with musical comedy before anybody else um, in Ireland. But unfortunately, it was not in vogue then. But there was quite a, a snobbery about stand-up. Stand-up was pure uh, it wasn't like today where everybody has a ukulele mm-hmm. um, or lazy comedian. David O'Doherty's little yeah, keyboard. Lazy David wanting to bring a tiny keyboard. He's a really good piano player, but he insists on bringing that tiny keyboard for <laughs> porterage reasons, as all comedians do with their tiny ukuleles. They can all play guitar, but no, they don't want the heavy, the heavy lifting. You only end up losing it when you're on the piss afterwards. Exactly, and they're on the plane the whole time. You know that they, they, you know, if you've flown Ryanair with a full size guitar or keyboard once in your or life, piano. <laughs> you'll turn into David O'Doherty or a ukulele comedian in the morning. But so we did all that and I kind of brought musical comedy and satire into things and then later worked with Oliver. Um, so I've been doing satire. I ran a satire festival in Trim called the Trim Swift Satire Festival based on Jonathan Swift uh, for about three years. And we had a we had a great time doing that. I got a, all the big satirists of, of Ireland and we got a few from far away. You worked um, on Leviathan as well? I worked on Leviathan, which was with David McWilliams and uh, Nisha Nunn. And we kind of brought, I, I would do the kind of satirical opening 20 minutes with music and and imagery and kind of, and that's what I brought into my own shows now, which is, I do shows on 1798, The Rebellion, The Ten Dark Secrets of 1798 and 1923. And also another show on uh, Brexit uh, and the future United Ireland we might have called The Joy of Brex. Um <laughs> Which only recently somebody said, why did you call it The Joy of Brex? I said, there's a famous book about sex from the 1980s called The Joy of Sex. But you see, unless people have no references anymore, mm. you know, literally if it's not fed to them on Facebook. Well, not only that, but there's so much to know these days as yes. well. But, Everyone that got all the little micro cultures and what but, they're but, watching. But I was associating Bre- Brexit with sex. and uh, That's and, something and that no one wants to do, though, because that brings up images of Boris Johnson. No, no. But I mean, it, unlike sex with Brexit, it's it's not are you in yet? It's are you out yet? <laughs> um, which most ladies should know. Uh, <laughs> but I just think the whole thing is... is and what I do with the Joy of Brexit is I, I explain we are going to get a United Ireland in 10 years. So we envision the future, what it's going to be like and in the show. And do you firmly believe that or is that just oh, for the show? Oh, 1000%. There's no other way it's going. Mm. There's, there's no direction it's going either demographically. But I don't believe in a demographic uh, uh, reunification. I believe that uh, it will happen on the basis of practicality. Yeah, one of the things I point out is that unionists, far from being intransigent people, unionists were always people who changed their view based on pragmatism. So they were anti-home rule for 120 years. Then in 1920, they get their own home rule. They did they, it before the Irish. They even get their own storeman, their own parliament building in 1932. So they do change with the wind. They were offered nine counties. They said, no, we'll take six <laughs> because we can manage six. We can't manage nine. So far from... One of them being Donegal, where I'm from, and nobody wants that. Being left. Well, of course, when they left uh, Cav and Monaghan and Donegal, 70,000 Protestants were left behind. So, so this idea of a kind of uh, intransigent unionism. I've done a lot of gigs up the north lately. I'm talking to a lot of Presbyterians, a lot of Protestants, and they're all talking about what a united Ireland might be. Whether they're for it or not, they're still all getting their Irish passports because they want to still be in the EU. So there's a lot of pragmatic stuff going on. And my big thing is that people aren't talking about it down here properly. And the government certainly aren't dealing with it. And we might have a united Ireland just land on us by by default with mm. Brexit. So we have to be prepared. Let's move away from United Ireland and go back to, to take a little step back to satire in general. Uh, 
Can you just give us like a basic what am satire? Like, is it another form of entertainment like Lost we mentioned earlier, or is it like a legit form of political commentary? I don't know. It's not Lost because uh, <laughs> I wasn't funny. <laughs> well, it can be. No, uh, Lost wasn't funny. Although my my dad was funny when he pointed out he he saw the the first episode, the second series. And, oh, it's Flan O'Brien. Yeah. And, and he figured out what had happened exactly in the whole story. I won't ruin it for anyone here. But uh, a satire is, uh, 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 well, comedians would tell you that it's it's comedy without jokes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I think you have to be... It's hard to pin down, isn't it? I think you have to be passionate about, about stuff with satire. I, f- I found in comedy, for me, comedy seemed to be about finding the, almost it was an obsession with the kernel of a joke or the kernel of something. You didn't have an opinion on it. It was literally what will work. Um, for this crowd, this night in this rowdy pub, satire is far far more about what you feel about the world. It's where you stand in the world. So, uh, you know, and for me, musical satire was always there. The Beatles always had a satirical song in their music. Uh, the Kinks, humor was in music. You know, before Coldplay came and ruined everything, <laughs> uh, music used to be used to have fun in it. You know what I mean? And then you two and Coldplay literally came along, and that was the end of satire mm. in music. And so. Uh, so music branched off into musical comedy and that's where I come in. I think, you know, Jonathan Swift, you know, he would, there's a, there's a hard edge to satire. That's the difference. There's a real hard biting edge. Um, when Jonathan Swift made the modest proposal saying, well, look, if, if, if you don't want to feed these homeless children or anything, we can just eat them. <laughs> you know, and his modest proposal was that as a way of feeding the poor that you would eat the poor children. For now, that sounds like a horrendous thing, but that's actually satire. Yeah. For back for context, though, this is back when the the Brits were ruling Ireland and there was mm. hundreds of thousands of people starving. Yes, and Jonathan Swift wrote this pamphlet saying, "Well, obviously, the only solution is to, as you say, e- eat the children." Yeah, eat because the children. But, but, but there was a famine in seventeen forty where four hundred thousand people died. Everyone forgets about the other famines mm. that were in Ireland. So, so it's a reaction to current events. Uh, it's generally topical, but funny enough, something like Modest Proposal you find the current events are so repetitious and that they happen in such a cyclical fashion that satire, sometimes it can live forever. Uh, something like a modest proposal. You, you would you would take a modest proposal and actually you'd be able to present it to the Irish government today and say, well, this is how you can deal with the, the homeless crisis. You know? I would be afraid to in case they would take it up. <laughs> oh, they probably would. This is the problem. Um, so in the US, and I guess here as well, because we mm. all consume each other's culture these days, um, people are turning to shows that are essentially meant to be pure satire, something like Last week tonight um, with John Oliver, The Daily Show with, um, what's his name, Noah? Trevor Noah. Uh, Trevor Noah. And uh, The Colbert Report, um, mm. although he does, which one does he do now? The Late, Late, the Late Show or something Late like Show with, with Stephen Colbert, yeah. Um, they're, they're going there to get their actual news and understanding of political <laughs> events as opposed to turning to what was like the news at 10. This is where they get their news or they watch the YouTube clips. And I mean, why is this? Like, why, why are people looking up? The last week tonight instead of looking up Newsnight. Well, yeah, I, you might say that. I think because news has become, I'm sorry, but I agree with fake news. I think I think news has become so, uh, what do they call it? You know, it, it, it's got a, CNN has a definite left-leaning liberal bias and then Fox News is Fox News. So you, you cannot look at it except with a pinch of salt. So satire sometimes is where you find the truth. I, I would not lean, unfortunately, I, I'm not going to fall into the category that people might assume, I don't think satire in America is working at all. And in fact, I think that since the loss of Jon Stewart and The Daily Show, we've lost something really, really important. I think that he was the most important presenter they had. Uh, I came up through the time of George W. Bush. Uh, My big contribution to that was I brought out a video uh, where I did the song Flash uh, by Queen, but it went, Bush, ah, 
<laughs> asshole of the universe. <laughs> and, and all the lyrics worked perfectly and it was great. And I remember when the president really was someone that someone like me would actually hate for the Iraq war and for the rest of it. I now find myself in the weird position where I don't agree with uh, liberal left feelings in America anymore. And that's really, really strange. Because when I start to hear satirists turning around and going, I wish we had George W. Bush back in, in the light of Trump, mm. then I go, well, then you're not remembering correctly do you what think, George W. Bush was about. Do you think this is a problem with satire in general, just that it lacks some of that nuance? Well, it was very, yeah, absolutely. It was very hard to satirize during the Obama years because they all loved him so much. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And yet John Stewart made a good stab at it. But I have a real problem in America. I think the only left-leaning satirist I listen to now is Bill Maher. Uh, I think he's the only one who remembers the old values of comedy and that America is a multifarious place where everybody used to slag each other on their differences. Uh, Trevor Noah is excellent. I think he's excellent. But but I want to hear more from Trevor Noah about South Africa. Mm. You know, I well, think he wrote it, a fantastic book about it. Oh, his experience is phenomenal. But I miss John Stewart because I, I honestly think, and I, I know this sounds xenophobic or whatever, but it's not meant to be. Sometimes you need a kind of a third generation American at making fun of American things. When I hear John Oliver making fun of American culture, it just doesn't ring true. Mm. I know it sounds ridiculous. It'd be like if someone was talking about Tipperary GAA and mm. they were from London. It just, you know, it, it just doesn't... I, I know he hasn't grown up with baseball. So when he makes a baseball joke, it doesn't ring true for me. It's just been written for him. I, yes, and I also find that I, I also find that the, the hatred and the anger towards Trump is so... It, it's taken... They've replaced satirical anger with real anger. You know what I mean? And it's not resulting in humour. I will shock you by saying that I'm actually watching a lot more right-wing comedy. I was about to ask. Uh, does, where is it? Who is it? It's, it's well, one guy, Greg Gutfeld from Fox News, does have a show called The, uh, the Greg Gutfeld Show. And I watch it regularly because it's the only one that's in the tank for Trump. And so I've always watched the people I don't agree with to actually find out where they're coming from. And I'm laughing as much. But I always did. I always found right-wing comedians like P.J. O'Rourke, who is a kind of an economist, a writer for the Rolling Stone, wrote for National Lampoon. He was right-wing all through the 80s, but he was also immensely funny. Mm. And I think this is where the left-wing has forgotten about you've got to be funny as well, guys. So when Greg Gutfeld does Lampoon, where the Democrats are at the moment, like the Democratic field in America is so ridiculous uh, and they're just apologizing for absolutely everything um, that... Trump is going to walk the next election. He's actually going to walk it. And it's and it's because of this self-questioning, self-berating culture that we have now, this kind of puritanical um, race to the bottom. Obama himself, right? Who I have a lot of problems with Obama because to me he was a very nice package around neoliberal policies and culture, you know, that we had already had, you know, but at least we stopped wars in the main Uh but at least he turned around and mentioned about the circular firing squad that you're actually taking each other out. You're, you're criticizing each other so much that there'll be nobody left standing. And that's what's, that's what's led to happen. Also, and you're not going to like this, Trump is funnier than the whole lot of them. <laughs> Trump is funnier than any late night comedy satirist Does he in mean America. To be? Unfortunately, he has come up through the media and, and he knows when to do a one-liner. Mm-hmm. There's an egotistical American thing that we don't like over here, but over there it does play. And and this is where it's hard it's hard to make fun of someone who's almost making fun of themselves the whole time. That he's found this weird conduit where you can make fun of Trump as much as you like. There's one brilliant guy, uh, I can't remember his name, but he's done a show called The President Show where he acts as the president and the whole cabinet are there. He's got fellow comedians playing uh, Steve Bannon and all of this. He was on for about three seasons on Comedy Central. Unbelievable work. 
hilarious, taking pot shots at both sides as well. Was That's, this was this the animation? No, no, not the animation. It was it was live action. His name is Greek and long, and it escapes me. But <laughs> try and find the president show. It was amazing. He did like a talk show, um, and. What was great about him is he was taking pot shots of both sides. The problem with the left satire now is that they're they're too busy, they're so enraged with the right that they can't even make fun of themselves. But I think one of the great satirists of America is Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live, and her sketches alone I think lost Hillary the election because she played her as this a maniac who just wanted power so much. Uh, some of those sketches are mind blowing. It was very on the nose. Yeah. So going back to a time in your opinion when satire was more effective. Uh, than you say it is now. Like, what are some of the some of those big, iconic, great examples of satire that still kind of ring true today? Well, early forms, I wouldn't be sure. I mean, I in my seventy ninety eight show, I use a lot of cartoons of the time as they were kind of making fun of or uh, propagandizing the story of the rebellion and after and stuff like that. It'd be Punch magazine, wasn't it? Well, there was Punch, yeah. And I mean, they used to portray the Irish horrendously as kind of ape like creatures and all this kind of thing. But some of the cartoons like then are are really focused as well. The one slagging off the French Revolution or the French Revolution slagging off um, uh, Britain and the monarchy. All that stuff was was very, very pointed. And of course it got everywhere because everybody, you know, there was one paper and everybody bought the one paper or whatever. Um, I think in the 60s, obviously, that was a week that was, um, I think was very effective. Even the class consciousness, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, uh, people like John Cleese and Ronnie Corbett doing the I Know My Place, you know. All that stuff. But see, a lot of things fit into satire for me, I, mm. I think. But I think we'd be nowhere without Peter Cook. I think Peter Cook and Private Eye and all of that was so important, you know. And, uh, and I, you know, even Graham, who works in the Phoenix, worked with me on Callan's Kicks. And, and it's this constant thing like where you, you know, uh, you find a line that applies to somebody. And uh, the line that we always applied to Leo, which was hilarious in Callan's Kicks, was that. Uh, uh, you know, Leo would just come on to a situation that was horrendous, like the health service goes, uh, it was like that when I got here. <laughs> and <laughs> and that'd be it. Or we would we would talk about Seamus Heaney, you know, and, you know, no discredit to his amazing work, but we'd call him Ireland's only poet. <laughs> because in Ireland, in Ireland, as you know, only one person is allowed to make it in any field whatsoever. And everyone else has to, mm. you know, wither in the dark. So Bono was Irish rock star until Hosier came along. That's it. Yeah. And now Hosier's talking about how great Bono is and stuff like that. So <laughs> I know you guys are a bit obsessed with Bono, you know. Not in a good way. Uh, no, I know. I, well, well, the thing about Bono is I, I know he has a sense of humour. I mean, I went to the same school, Mount Temple, about 15 years after him. But it, it's just, it's... It's it's kind of the overaching seriousness. The only the only thing I did will say about Bono is I used to give out about him, and then my friends said, "Well, you know, he doesn't have to do all that stuff, you know, for Africa." He also so, could pay his taxes. That's my biggest gripe oh, with him. <laughs> anybody could. I mean, I, I was. I, <laughs> ah, but someone that goes on and on about wanting to give money to charity should also maybe pay what they're they're supposed to pay themselves. It isn't on. There's got to be a a patriot tax or something for all these people. You know, for patriotism, give back. Yeah, you were born here. You grew up here. You know. You you benefited from the system. You must you must. Do you hear that, back. Richie, over there in London? <laughs> yeah, Richie. As long as you're sending the money back now for the prayers. Well, I've, I've been sending it back in a brown envelope to Steve's house. He said that he would take care of it from there. <laughs> He's got bags not... of spuds here. Bags of spuds. He's just bought with that money. <laughs> That's what I was instructed to by Richie. Yeah. That was what it was. I'm investing in spud, spud futures. <laughs> <laughs> There's no future in spuds. What? Uh, <laughs> my favourite satirist is Armando Iannucci yes brilliant and fantastic I yeah. think I think he had an absolute massive impact both on satire but then on practical politics as it is I think 
shambles is now said so often that this week in a press statement, Shane Ross, the Minister for Tourism in Ireland, said it was a shambolic shambles that was full of shambolism with <laughs> yeah. with shambles. Well, didn't Ianucci come up with Omni shambles? Um, that's that, where it came that, from. That, yeah. I love that one. Yeah. And now it's everywhere. Yeah, well, my favourite Ianucci line, of course, is, you know, we can't repeat it, but where he tells the person to stick the iPod. But um, well, we uh, can repeat it. <laughs> I think. Well, I think. I, look, Ianucci for me. Um, I mean, I loved his original comedy stuff and all of that. But I just think what he's done is he's um, exposed the glaring mediocrity at the heart of it. All. Exactly. The glaring kind of these people have no goddamn talent. These are the ones who tell you, you know, we we better pay that banker a billion quid because he'll take his talent elsewhere. What talent? The guy working in the in the till at the bank knows how to bank. Mm. Banking's easy. You know, lend out some money, get it more back at profit, the pro- at interest. The, the interest is the profit. Game's over. Done. But this stuff is simple. And yet, what Iannucci does is he, he, he points out what we do here all the time and especially in corporate language, corporate speak, the complexification of things. Things that are really simple. They find a way to complexify everything. So, he makes fun of it. And then the horrible PR layer over that, the PR layer of look at the work I'm doing while I'm not doing any work. You know, he does all that. But he, my favourite thing he's done so far is the death of Stalin, I think. Mm, it's fantastic. And what I love about Iannucci is he finds the heart of Stalinism, which is when they're all sitting around the table afterwards, who's going to be the leader? And, you know, they're they're talking away and, and um, the Michael Palin character, you know, he said, what we need to do is this. And they're all going, yes, yes, yes. And then he counters himself. Goes, but also we need to be cognizant of that. Yeah. And and everyone's there going, which way is he was, going? There, oh, is it unanimous? <laughs> he's waiting to see all yes. that. Unanimous. <laughs> and again, it's about people who can't make up their yeah. effing minds. And these are people running the Soviet empire. Yeah, yeah, like, they, it doesn't matter yeah, what level. Make up your mind and do something. This but is the can't. problem. And I think but then he, again, you see, the best thing about that movie, I think, is that it starts off being mm-hmm. an absolute comedy, showing how ridiculous everyone is. But then by the end, you see how horrific practical politics can be. Because while these people were like comedically tripping over each other for mm. power, one of them loses and he gets shot in the head and set on fire. Oh, that's it. Yeah. So there are real consequences to these to these ridiculously comedic inter like Oh oh that's it. But I mean he captures that beautifully and also like it's it but also when Stalin dies, it's like, you know, what what'll we do? And and you're there going, Well this is very simple. Let's have a vote. Let's go. These things should be simple. It, I, I think what Ianucci captures is complexification. Where people just can't do the simple thing and do the right thing. They have to see which way the wind is blowing and then you never put their head above the parapet to do anything different. And he captures bureaucracy. That's what he does. He captures the dull, turgid, slow-grinding bureaucracy in the way I think Ricky Gervais captured in The Office. I mm. think he captured that kind of... And that's why the world is so screwed up because no one can make a goddamn decision. Despite that, we are going to go on and we're going to talk about true fake facts. Okay. <laughs> this is something that we force, um, if we happen to have a guest, we force ourselves to do it as well, where we say something that is absolutely true but 100% fake about whatever we're talking about. Okay. Uh, Paddy, do you want to go first? True <laughs> fake facts. About satire. Do you want a true fact or a fake fact? That's the question. <laughs> That's the question. Okay. Uh, let me think. Uh, satire has changed the world. Oh, that's a deep one. Mm. Ooh. Mm. That's going to hit on a later question as well. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is great. My well, one is that the Pokemon move Swift was inspired by Jonathan Swift. I, that's, that's actually true though, Steve. That's not fair. Damn it. Is it true? What, what's your one? Uh, I was just quickly verifying it and it's true. So if you take the uh, word, the letters of 
political satire and rearrange them, it's polite racialist. Ooh. <laughs> and well, I think with, that, that yeah. speaks to the true origins of political satire, that they were originally a group of uh, very polite people who were trying to just split up everyone into easy, profilable positions. But everyone laughed at them because they thought they were just being, you know, funny. And then they're like, oh, maybe we can rebrand. And they just move the letters around. Well, that, I like that. That's actually brilliant. I never realized that. And, and, but funny enough, like I said about Bill Maher, Bill Maher comes from a time in America. And I remember, like, I, I'm an American citizen myself, um, though I grew up in Ireland. But I do remember a time when people made fun of each other, like, like for their differences, you know, um, in America. And now it seems that that is completely off base. But I find that very strange in a multicultural society. Uh, doesn't find all the differences that are going on between each other and have a bit of ribbing fun about it. But you see, this is the world we've we've come into now. Where you, how can you have satire and comedy when you're not allowed to make fun of anything? I mean, honestly, I, I I am watching some of the output of BBC and just going, there's nothing funny here because you're not allowed to actually make fun of things that people used to make fun of. That's not saying I, I don't that- want to go back to Bernard Manning, but I'm just saying there, there's a strange world emerged where somehow if we can't make fun of each other's appearance that that's that's pretty much the end of everything <laughs> I think I, I, mean, I, 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 I would disagree a little bit I do think there is some good comedy out there that, that you just maybe there you have to relook at how you are wrapping it up and the vehicle you're delivering it in I think Michael Schur is a really great uh, American writer and showrunner who's been like consistently knocking out a park with, park with great shows that would kind of are a more learned woke version of comedy but still don't really pull punches in certain areas if you know what which I mean which ones are those which ones are those oh uh, so like parks and recreation um the good place that kind of thing oh yeah yeah like th- this yeah, is an example of modern great comedy that does walk Fle- a line fleabag fleabag from the uk as well was exactly like, yeah. a good example of like it didn't get in trouble for doing anything inappropriate but it still punched pretty hard on the it, on the directions that it wanted to punch it did punch pretty hard but it unfortunately it didn't punch uh me into moving the muscles on my face you that didn't denote laugh. laughter okay and, See, I and loved I, it. I, I couldn't stop laughing start to finish at that. No, that's fine. And it, may be, it could be a generational thing uh, because I'm 902. <laughs> but I think, but uh, I know what you're saying. I, I get it. But Isn't the danger that previously it was very easy to punch down? Yeah. Whereas now you have to be careful about punching down because it's not fair. Well, what I'm noticing, maybe you're right, but what I'm noticing though, unfortunately, is there's a total unwillingness to punch up. Uh, so... We're we're getting this kind of great woke comedy and all of that, but I feel a little bit a little bit like what we discussed about the tax thing and tax exiles and stuff like that. There's a seeming kind of desire by everybody. It, it's a world motion. It's the reason there's such anti-Corbyn feeling because some people might get taxed an extra two percent on their millions. But it seems to me like there's a whole bunch of people who want to make it in a very acceptable way. And we all know what the acceptable ways of making it are in the BBC and various places like that. And they get to be stars and they get to sit in the couch with Graham Norton and it's all great and it's all lovely. And they get through the thing into the golden circle and then they just shut the little gate behind them. And then everyone can all have nice accountants and live a certain way and not pay any more tax anymore. And we all sit around going, isn't this hilarious and isn't this wonderful? And I, I just don't. I just don't see hard-hitting humour coming out of any of that stuff. I think the big struggle in the world today is class. I don't think it's to do with race. I don't think it's to do with identity. I don't think it's to do with any of the woke politics. In fact, I think wokeism has come along as a means of distracting a huge element of society, and especially the left, away from the real issue, which is classism. And I think uh, a lot of those comedy shows you talk about are great, but they, they, they fundamentally veer away from the issue of class. And that's my problem. Mm. 
and it's just a serious. It's a serious. I know we're getting very serious here, but I, I, I do feel that that is. Um, if we spend all our time worrying about, oh well, you know, you know, punching down or punching this way or punching that way, without actually getting to the heart of punching up, um, then we're in trouble. I mean, I, I don't know how much Harry Enfield, like Harry Enfield, to me is one of the great satirists of all time. I don't know how much he would be allowed to do now. Well, he he, he punches at the royals. You can't get much higher than that in UK society. Uh, you can, but they're an easy target. And they're yeah. a handy enough target, by the way. Because once once you're punching at the Royals and they're making fools of themselves, you can forget about the other big swathe of, of England that are running mm. and owning everything. You know what I mean? I have to say, it is funny. I I, I only found out Michael Gove recently was the uh, minister for the Duchy of Lancaster. I didn't realise what this thing was. It's actually a big lump of land at the Royal Zone. And his whole job is to administer uh, what they do with the money and stuff like that. And it's this remarkable thing in England of class that they... But then, of course, of course as, I, as you look at my show, it, it, about 1798, Ireland was run by 300 rich people 200 years ago, and the rest of us were just slaving around uh, uh, for them. Well, that number hasn't really gone up that much. <laughs> nothing has changed. They just found out that 81% of Irish wealth is owned by 300 people. There so nothing has changed. So this is, this is the real thing we have to worry about. And we have to stop worrying about whether be, we're being um, whatever ist is the order of the day. Do you know what I mean? We we have to really kind of get back to we're all people. We're all the same. Everything's progressed. Uh, the Enlightenment happened 200 years ago. Um, we need to now focus on making sure everybody does well out of this life and out of this world. Um, and as long as we're doing this whole woke culture thing and we're berating each other and beating each other to death on Twitter, I think we're in really, really big trouble. Because that that way, the the the, the ruling class can just mop up everything and just go, Asher. Ah, Look! Look at them. They're eating each other alive, as the left always have done. I, I think that's a false dichotomy to go to to um, put woke culture and the type of toxic Twitter culture that that you see. I don't mm. think. I think that's a, a, a false um, comparison to make of those two things. I, that I would totally disagree with. Like woke culture, I, I know it does. It can get a bad rap, and um, mm. for all the reasons you described, but mm. it, like it was born out of uh, a way of protecting and enli- enlightening about marginalised people and I don't want to lose that for the sake of you know I, I wouldn't boil it no, down no, to I just like whatever the most topical ist of the day is feels like a mm. dangerous way of framing that yeah but I mean yeah, yeah but I mean ageism is ageism is the one thing that is everyone's allowed to be which I think is outrageous uh, because you know I think age ageism well, is why probably, do you say that I just get a sense of it everywhere. It's the one thing that everyone's still allowed to slag people for being older or old people. It, it's the but one area where, where it's still open. <laughs> but it works both ways because targets. you have people that are older slagging off people for being young, the, like the millennial clashback. And- yeah, but I know what you're saying about lose. Look, it's not that I want to lose the gains, but the point is we've made the gains. We, we know. We know about gender inequality. We know about all of this stuff. We, we've got, we've, so you think these are, issues are, fi- are fixed? No, I think they're, they were dealt with actually in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And in fact, what we're doing is now, it's called the luxury of the non-emergency. We're now living in an era where because those things have actually been sorted out, we almost have to create I don't think, uh, in what way have problem, they been, problems. like gender inequality been sorted out? Well, they've, they've essentially, uh, all of those issues have been dealt with, have been aired and... Uh, uh, will airing is one thing dealing with I think is is another I, I don't want to get too too bogged down I just this is just this is just my true but good I'm just saying I'm just saying in the area of satire and comedy and all of that that if you uh, if you still think that we're living in an era where all of this stuff hasn't been sorted out and it all needs to be sorted okay 
You know, I think we, we I think we've crossed loads of Rubicons in in all of the areas. That's I'm not saying there's no work needs to be done in any of the cases. Isn't okay? there room to continue but, to fight both battles? Like, I mean, you're you, well. I, that's what I would like to I do. I think your criticism is that we're getting distracted by by focusing too much on these identity identity and cultural issues, and we're not taking the powerful to task for the economic travesties that are still well. That's blatant. what I yeah. So I mean, but is it not to say that we can do both? We can simultaneously say we would we would like to continue to see gains being made in terms of gender equality and racial equality. And we would also like the rich people to start paying their fucking taxes well, I so we love, can have good, good listen, services. I agree completely. I would love it to be both. See, here's my problem. I suppose, you know, let me explain myself a bit better. It's very easy to adopt all of these things because they're very voguish and, and they make you look great. Okay, so our, even our own government have adopted all these wonderful progressive ideas, even though these are ideas that they themselves were against two years previously. So that's what I don't like. It's a hypocrisy and it's the way it can but, be but, used. But, people, but uh, if people didn't change their minds, then where would we be? It, like, isn't that not something that to, to be commended? The ability to... If people didn't change you their... Can, you could, if you, you can apply tags like voguish or trendy or whatever, but ultimately mm. if people are changing their minds to a progressive view for an, an ultimate benefit, is that not a good thing? If it's progressive, if they end up being progressive and they don't turn into the witches of Isn't Salem. Isn't that what we're talking about, though? Yeah, but, but the problem is that the methods that they're using are almost like the, the, the methods of, of Salem. So that what you, you don't get everyone to feel progressive. You actually uh, uh, get a lot of people fighting with each other and actually going, well, I'm, I'm rejecting that now. And, and this is the issue, that if you use the tactics of the Witchfinder General of Salem uh, to try and get everyone to be progressive, you know, when you call everybody in America deplorables that doesn't agree with you, you lose the election. I'm sorry, you lose in the end. When you decide to, to, to take a whole section of society and say, you're no good, uh, you're backwards, you're idiots. You know what I mean? My favourite album, I'm afraid, is the Village Green Preservation Society uh, by the Kinks. Uh, I don't like office blocks. I don't like new. I don't like shiny. I'm actually quite conservative when it comes to quite artistic things. Um, a lot of people are made up of very, very different characteristics. They're not just left progressive and right conservative. And the problem is by, by locking each other out, by putting each other into these categories, we actually end up not creating a kind of a groundswell of support for progressive ideas. I think we actually can kill them dead. So that's just what I have to be. You know, I know we're having a conversation about satire here, but I feel the same way about satire, that if satire only comes from one opinion and doesn't know even how to laugh at itself, well, then you get a sense of, like, let's say left progressive satire just takes on the right. Great, great. We can see it. That's fantastic. But are there anything in your own, in your own, is there anything in your own back garden you need to make fun of as well? You know, one of the great, uh, The Dictator for me, for me by Sasha Baron Cohen is one of the great satires. You know, he literally destroys hipster Brooklyn fr- from top to bottom uh, because he appoints himself as, as head of a, a health food store. Uh, and it's, it's magnificent the way it's done. It's absolutely fabulous. But, you know, again, it's laughing at something that we all probably know that he personally is. I mean, I, I, I have plenty of greeny progressive credentials myself. And then I have other aspects of myself, I'd say, which are quite arch conservative. I'd knock down every office block in Dublin and replace it with the Georgian architecture it demolished. Mm. So th- this is kind of, we're all made up of very, very, we're very complex beings, right? But the way the world seems to be pairing off into left and right is trying to put everybody into a bag. And when you do that, you can get no unity in anything. The last time we had unity here was on the water charges for some reason because people weren't eating each other alive over their tiny little Trotskyite differences. Um, do you think what on politics is set there? Where do we, where do we fit into this? Uh, I, you know something, you're, you're, 
I think the, everything is satire now. I mean, almost everything is satire now. If if you kind of look at anything with an askance eye, you're going to get down that road. I think it's great to get down the road of discussing and talking about this stuff. And actually, um, because almost everything is politics now, right? So, um, so you might remember, Richie, back in pre-2008, how educated were people on economics? Like, did anyone ever think about mm-hmm. it in Celtic Tiger Ireland for one second? Did anyone even talk about John Maynard Keynes? You know, and Dave McWilliams, you know, was shouting into the into the the void. <laughs> this is all going to go south. And um, and then everybody got really educated on it. Everybody, and I think with the rise of internet, um, Twitter, all of the rest of it, everyone has a political opinion now. People weren't political. I I swear to God, ten years ago, people were not mm. as political. We could still get a huge march out to protest the Iraq War. Do you know what I mean? People generally hated America. Imperialism, this type of thing, um, but now people are very, very, very um, how could I say over-researched or researched at least. Do you know what I mean? I suppose what you were saying about at least we know about these things. At least we're trying to work on these and progress with these things and make sure that they're gone. I just hope I'm not at the expense of humor. Um, and I think um, I, everything is politics now. So you are satire because you are everything. <laughs> yeah, we can we can add a new tag to our to our website and our spot, podcast feed. You're, you're like you're like um, Arcade Fire. You're everything now. I knew we're everything to all people. <laughs> we you, were look, we were looking for something to stick on our um, uh, merchandise candle that we were going to sell in the store. So we are everything. We are. What was it again? <laughs> no, we am. It's we, am everything. We, am we am. We am. <laughs> we am everything. That's the way it is, lads. You am everything now. <laughs> I think that's a good point to wrap it up. Um, thanks excellent. very much, Freddie, for coming in. It Thank got you, more serious than I thought. I'm sorry, guys. I actually no, thought, you're fi- I think that's the nature of it as well. Yeah, it's but, actually pretty funny, though, because we, we went to talk about what's supposed to be the most blatantly funny topic, and we ended up getting into one of the hardest political discussions we've had on this show well, so far. Yeah, <laughs> But like I said, satir- satirists are passionate people. It's true. So uh, it, that that is the problem, is that you are so bloody passionate, you know, that you, you know, you get... Um, you get wrapped up in the hole. That's a good boat to end on. Thanks, Paddy. Thank you. Steve, is that the first time I've ever disagreed with a guest? Um, uh, I don't I've know. Got a taste for, I've got a taste for it now, Stephen. I disagree <laughs> on, with everyone for everything. You're on the rampage for people to row with. Say, say something, I'll disagree with it. Uh, Hercules is a very beautiful boy. <sighs> you bastard. <laughs> uh, thank you, Paddy. Yeah, thanks, Paddy. Thanks, thanks a million. We're gonna, you're in work, so we're going to keep this pretty short for this little outro. But we're doing our end of year wrap up soon, or end of year Christmas special, and we would like yep. suggestions from you guys of what we should talk about. Yes, uh, it has been a 2019 that has taken usual amount of time, as in a year, and we would like to hear what you guys thought about topics that we talked about, what we didn't talk about, whatever you want to talk good, about. The good, the bad. The really bad, the awful, the just goddamn, just just really just putrid, awful, awful stuff. And then back to good again for the ending. Yes. <laughs> That's how we're going to roll it out. But yeah, yeah, stuff we talked about, stuff we didn't talk about, stuff you'd like us to talk about. So how, how are they going to do it? How do we do this? Uh, email? Twitter, well, basically, however, I guess. Twitter, Instagram, Twitter, email. Yeah, so at what, uh, at what on politics on Twitter and Instagram, what on politics at gmail.com. Uh, shoot us an email message send us a voice message from the website oh yeah go to onepolitics.com and leave us a little voice message you might stick you in the show and uh, yeah because 
Give us ideas because we don't have any. I'm going to do my Usador the Blue thing and do put your message into a small lark's anus. Let it fly across the stratosphere and lo and behold it shall come to me with the message. And like that's a, that's a great podcast that's Hello from Magic Tavern and it may sound like I was rambling and mad but that's actually was, what he does I was gonna <laughs> I was gonna say <laughs> unless you listen to that podcast you sound like an absolute lunatic more yeah. so than usual uh, but that's it that's all we wanted to ask it's just like this little favour of you guys that would be lovely so that's about it here look don't go disagreeing with people everywhere now just I mean you got the taste for it you had mm. you had you had a, a vigorous and debateful debate but don't go like grabbing the fella down in the corner shop and going I disagree sir about whether or not that costs five pounds because Richie it probably does cost five pounds it's, it's called bartering it's called bartering Steve <laughs> looking you can't take your cattle my everywhere. chickens spend well here just like they spend